Well, welcome uh, over in the venue, and Ben, it was really great. I was over there watching you lead worship, and Claudia, thank you for leading worship over there with the team. Um, again, I just want to welcome all of you, especially uh, those of you that are visiting with us. If you're watching online, blessings. We have people that watch literally all over the world online, or if you're listening on the radio, we're, we're glad you're with us. Uh, you can take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter uh, 3, and while you're turning there, let me... Uh, let me, let me tell you about something that's coming up. Uh, the first Saturday of October, we're going to start a brand new venue on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock. Uh, if you're visiting with us, um, we have a gathering that met last night. I talked about it. It was really great. And we have a gathering that meets in here at 9 o'clock and a venue that meets at 9 o'clock. And then we have this meeting here. And then there's, you know, a bunch of people in a room over there with live music and all that. And this is being beamed in there to them right now. Well, we're going to start a venue on Saturday night, but it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be to uh, young marrieds. If you're married less than seven years, we want to have a gathering for you on Saturday night. It'll be way, way different. Pastor Mark Clements, who oversees all of that, will, will lead it. There'll be music and all of that. The message will be piped in over there. Uh, the setting will be real, real different. Everything about it's going to be way, way different. And we want you to at least put it on your calendar if you've been married less than seven years. You're a young married. And it's a unique little phase of life that you're in. You're beginning to have your you know, first children and all of that. And we want to be able to get you together and be a blessing to you. And then we also want to help you see how Sunday can be a real Sabbath in your life. You come to church on a Saturday night. And I know some of you are in here going, well, we like Sunday, and, and, and that's great. And maybe that's where you're going to end up. But we're going to ask you at least give us a season. Give us a month or six weeks. Come on over to it. I think you'll dig it. And then we want to help you see how Sunday then can be a real Sabbath in your life, how you and your spouse can enjoy that day, or you and your spouse and your children can enjoy that and make that a special day. You've worshiped on Saturday and have a real Sabbath on, on Sunday. And so you'll hear more about it. And if you are a part of this family, you're going to get stuff sent to you in the mail and, and all that. So anyway, keep, uh, keep an eye out on that. It's going to, be, going to be fun. Well, for those of you that are visiting, we're in a series here at Big Valley Grace called The Seven Letters. In the book of Revelations, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven different letters. These are personal letters to seven different churches. These were churches in the first century that were located throughout Asia Minor. And I've likened these letters to uh, progress reports. All of us remember getting progress reports when we were in school as kids. Um, my, uh, I was thinking back to the progress reports my, my mom would have gotten about me. And uh, progress reports let your mother or your parents know or your guardians know how well you were doing in school. The areas that you were doing well in, the areas that you weren't doing very well in. As I thought back to my progress reports, I always did well like at recess. I was unbelievable. I could do recess like few people. <laughs> it was everything else that I struggled in so, so, so much. Well, in these seven letters, Jesus commends these churches for doing, you know, good things, but he also confronts them on the bad things that they were doing, just like a a progress report would. The first letter was written to the church at Ephesus. This was a, a busy church. They'd become so busy doing good things, holy things, righteous things, that they had forgot about the most important thing. And that is that they just forgot about their first love for Jesus. 
The second letter was written to the church at Smyrna. This was a, a suffering church. This was a group of people that were suffering greatly just because they were believers. There was great persecution going on in that church. The third letter was written to the church at Pergama. This was the confused church. They were confused as to what the truth was. They believed in the Bible or, or the Old Testament, whatever piece of the Bible they would have had back then. The New Testament wasn't obviously finished. But they were also confused as to what truth was. They were allowing other things to kind of invade their lives, their families' lives or whatever. The fourth uh, letter was written to the church at Thyatira. This was the tolerant church. This was a, a group of people that had begun to tolerate all kinds of sinful things, sinful, crummy teachings or whatever. The fifth letter was written to the church at Sardis. This was the dying church. This was a group of people that had forgotten to feed their, their souls. And one of the things that we've all noticed, if you've been a part of this series, is this was written 2,000 years ago. It was written to all kinds of different churches, all different kinds of people, that had all different kinds of needs and issues. And yet it's amazing how, though all those things are true, how it's applicable to us here in Modesto, California, at this church called the Valley Grace. Though this was written a long, long time ago, it applies to us today. And uh, it's been fun to get the emails and the texts and all the things from some of you as you've shared with me how the Lord has really been, been working in your life. Well, this sixth letter that we're going to begin to look at today was written to a, a church at Philadelphia. This was a, a growing church or a healthy church. And I want us to, to read this letter together. So Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 7. Like I said, the, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be in your notes or it'll be in the jumbotrons or whatever. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of the heaven from my God. And I will also write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I've shared with you that it's not my goal or my purpose or my intent to look at every word or every phrase and sort of dissect it all. That's not what I'm, I'm, I'm here to do. I'm just looking at the broad stroke of it. And I'm looking at how that broad stroke, whether they were a busy church or a suffering church, a confused church, a tolerant church, a dying church, or in this case, a growing church, what we can extrapolate out from this letter, how it might apply to us and how we can apply it to our families or whatever. But to get us started, I, I want us to look at something that Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
He wrote this to a young pastor who was, you know, pastoring a church, and he said this. He said, Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Paul says, Timothy, I'm hoping I can come to you. I'm hoping, you know, to get on a camel or whatever, a donkey or walk. I'm, I'm hoping to come to your church. I, I, I'm looking forward to being with, with the people of your church. But just in case I'm delayed, just in case I can't make it, I, I'm writing to you because I want you to know how you, as one of God's followers, how you're to conduct yourself. You, 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 as followers of Jesus, are the pillars and the support of the truth. You. And those of you that name the name of Jesus Christ here, this is your church, that is what you're called to do. You are called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. You. And when you, I, I, I think Paul probably looked at one of those great pillars, you know, maybe around the Colosseum or something, and how it could hold up just great big rocks, you know, great stone structures. And he's saying, that's what you are, Christian. You are the, the pillar. You're the support of the truth. You as a, a Christian are, are called to, living, to, 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 to live according to God's truth. God wants us as believers to conduct ourselves in a way that supports the truth. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Christian, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one uh, lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds, Christians, shine for all to see. Why? Why does God want us to be the pillar and support of the truth? Why does God want our good deeds to, to shine out? So that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus is basically saying the same thing that Paul's saying to Timothy here. He's saying to us who name his name, I want you to live God-honoring lives. I want you to, to live in accordance with the truth. And it's not that living according to the truth saves us or redeems us. It doesn't. What saves us is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. He was holy. He was righteous. And when we invite Jesus into our lives, because of his holiness and his righteousness, we're made holy and we're made righteous, period. But then God says, you, Christian, are the pillars in support of the truth. Live out the truth. You, you you're it. You're, you're the, the ones that I want to, you know, live out the, the, the scriptures. It's, it's important to God. Living out the, the truth is, is critical to, to, to God. God wants the, you know, his people to do life in a way that somehow those that you work with, those that you go to school with, those that you play golf with, those that you play tennis with, those that you do whatever with, somehow they go, whoa, they're living differently. They don't have to agree with it, but at least they see it's, it's different, that there's something about it. 
That, that's different than how the, the, the world, you know, lives. Now, here's the thing. It, it's getting more difficult um, to pull it off in our culture, though. Think about this. If there are more non-Christians than there are Christians in Stanislaus County, and there are, there's way more unbelievers in our county than there are Christians. If the prevailing secular culture is growing stronger and stronger every day, and it is, then it makes sense that we as Christians are going to have a harder and harder time living out our faith. Doesn't it make sense that we as a church family are going to have a harder and harder time being the pillars and the support of the truth? I mean, think about it. We, we as Christians are, are, are outgunned. The government is doing all that it can to marginalize us. There was a time in our nation's history when we had the government on our side. In fact, they were so much on our side, they chiseled into those great buildings in Washington, D.C., scriptures, the truth. There was a time in our nation's history when the only textbook that our students learned from was the scriptures. They understood, the founding fathers, that we were to be the pillar and support of the truth. In fact, in a weird way, they thought that our nation was to be a nation that was the pillar and the support of the truth. They knew not everybody was going to believe in this book. They understood that. They weren't fools. But the idea was, was that we as a country were, were pillars in support of the truth. That's why you see scripture chiseled into all those great buildings in Washington, D.C. But today it's changed. No longer is the government on our side. They're, they're no longer our friend. The president has come out against biblical truth or biblical morality. Our president, the most powerful man on the planet, is no longer, uh, uh, you know, standing for the truth of the word of God. He's not a, a pillar in support of the truth. And, and, and I'm not slamming our president. It's just the truth. He, he's an individual who can do what he wants to do. He was elected and he got elected. But the bottom line is he's not standing for the truth. He, he's not a pillar and a support of the truth. And when the most powerful guy on the planet isn't standing with you, then the, we're outgunned. The public schools don't want Jesus anywhere in the classroom anymore. You can bring anything you want as a teacher or an aide into the classroom. Just don't bring the word of God. Don't, don't bring that in there. It seems as if, you know, Christians are the only group of people that it's okay to make fun of or discriminate against. You know, shows can, can joke around about believers, cartoons can be written about us, and it ain't no big deal. But you write a cartoon about some religious leaders and buckle your seatbelt and hopefully you got your major medical paid up. Hopefully you got life insurance because you're taking your life into your own hands. But Jesus, Christians, man, you can, you can jack us up all day long. Who's going to say anything? Atheists are more emboldened than ever, and why not? There's always been atheists, but there was a time when at least the government and everybody around us was kind of on our side. Today they're not, and so guess what, man? They've got the government. They've got, the, they, they got, all, these, they got all kinds of, uh, of manpower now. And when you add it all up, it can be tough to, to be a pillar in support of the, of the truth. 
It can be very difficult. It's getting harder and harder, but I want you to know something. As hard as we have it, and it, we, we've got it tough, and it's going to get tougher, this church at Philadelphia had it way worse than we, we, we could ever dream of. Way worse. It's the one church of these seven letters that we know the least about, but what we do know about this group and the culture was, man, this was a crummy place to try to live out your faith. A crummy place. I mean, could you imagine, this church is called uh, Big Valley Grace, and then you got Calvary uh, uh, Chapel down there, and you got Shelter Cove down there, and you got the house over there, and in Philadelphia, they had the synagogue of Satan, and, and that's, what, that's what Jesus called it, the synagogue of Satan. Th th this was a tough gig to live out your faith at this church <laughs> in this town. And yet they did it. This was a growing church. This was a really healthy church in a, in a culture that's way worse than ours. And so what I've done is I, I found a, a few things that I, I, I want to extrapolate out that I think we can learn from. These are signs maybe of a, of a healthy church, things that I found in this church. Now, here's the deal, because I'm going to put some of your hearts at ease. There are four things in your program. Okay? And there's going to come a moment where we're going to take communion. I hope this message leads us to a great moment of com communion. Uh, I never know whether it's going to work out that way, but that's the goal, <laughs> that we'll have communion at the end. And some of you are going to go, oh, no, he's only at point two, and, and you'll, you'll get nervous, and you'll start sweating, and you won't be able to concentrate. I'm only going to do the first two. Then next week, Lord willing, if God doesn't come back, we'll do the, the following two. Okay, because some of you, I, I'll see it on your face. He's only at number two, and we're out of time. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Sign number one, okay, this is a signs of a healthy church. A healthy church has an open door to serve the Lord and to reach the lost. A healthy church, a growing church, a church that God has blessed is one that has an open door to serve the Lord and reach the lost. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, nobody can shut, and when he shuts, nobody can open. I have placed before you an open door that nobody can shut. Now, I want you to know that not everybody agrees as to what is being said here, okay? All this opening doors and shutting doors and doors that are opened and I opened it and no one's shutting it and if you try to shut it, you ain't shutting and I'm shutting the door and you ain't opening it. What's going on there? Not everybody agrees. But I want to kind of um, maybe build a case here as to why I believe it has to do with the idea of an open door to serve the Lord and to reach the lost. Verse 7 uses this little phrase, who holds the key of David. Who holds the key of David. What's that about? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Shebna. Okay, he worked for the king as the palace administrator, and he was a really crummy guy. He was, a, he was an evil guy, and as, as the palace administrator, you were given the, the keys to the palace. You were given the keys to the house of David, okay, which meant that you had control over all the doors, if you got the keys to all the doors, that means you had control over all the doors. And the person who had the keys to all the doors had all the power. Because if you showed up at the palace and you wanted to get in, if you had the keys, you could 
Oh, I'll let you in. You can shut the door. It's kind of like a bouncer now out in front of a club. They let in who they want to let in. And if somebody showed up and said, I want to get in, and the, the, the guy could go, I let you in. Well, what if I give you 100 shekels? 100? Make it 200. I'll let you in. Whoever had the keys had the power because you control all the doors. And this guy, Shebna, had the keys. I have some keys in my pocket. And uh, this key right here, there's only, I think, two of them, okay? And I got one of them. There are all kinds of doors to this, to this church. Doors out at the school, doors into the children's ministries, doors into the worship area, doors into the venue, doors into the office. There are doors everywhere. Doors that go into the financial area, doors that go into the youth area. There are more doors here than you could imagine. Most people have like one key, and it gets them into their school classroom, or it gets them into the youth center, or it gets them into the, uh, uh, you know, the venue. This key is different. This key right here gets me into everything. I can get into just about anything I want with that key. That, that key makes me a very powerful guy. Because I can get in anywhere around here. In fact, I had to sign a contract that said, listen, if somebody comes and robs you, give them your wallet, give them your rings, give them your car, give them anything you want, but do not give up the key. Okay, the, the key, the key is the, one, is the one thing I'm not allowed to give up. I, I can give up everything else, but just don't give up the, 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 the key. Anyway, this Shebna guy held all, all of the, the keys, which made him a very, very powerful uh, uh, person. Okay, well, God was gonna replace Shebna with a man by the name of Elikim. And God says this in Isaiah chapter 22. See if this sounds familiar. He says, I, that's God, will give him, that's Elikim, the key to the house of David. The highest position in the royal court. And when he opens the door, no one's gonna be able to close them. When, when, he, when he closes the door, nobody's gonna be able to open them. So back at verse 7, that little phrase there, who holds the key of David, starts to make a little bit of sense. Beloved, Jesus is basically reminding the people of this church that he, Jesus, is the one who holds all the keys. He's the one who has them. He's the one who has all the power, all the authority. He's the one who decides who gets the keys. He can decide to open doors. He can decide to close doors. He's in complete control. And when Jesus opens a door, there isn't anybody that can shut it. Nobody. So in this context, at least from my vantage point, it's Jesus who's the one that's opened up all these great doors of ministry and evangelism that's going to happen in this city. Listen to what Paul said in Acts chapter 14. He said, upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and they reported everything God had done through them and how he, that's God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
You see, God was the one who opened the door so that we Gentiles could come to faith in, 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 in Jesus. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 16, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There's a wide open door for great work here, though many oppose me. See, it doesn't matter who's in opposition to Paul. It doesn't matter who's in opposition to us. It doesn't matter who was in opposition to the church at Philadelphia. It doesn't matter. Because when God opens a door and he has all the keys, there isn't anybody who's going to shut it. It doesn't matter how bad or crummy the opposition might, might be. Paul basically said the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, when I came to the city of Troas to pe preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me there. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 4. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. To me, beloved, I think what Jesus was telling this church was, look, I'm the one who's all-powerful. I have all the keys. I have the keys to the palace. I have the keys of, of David, so to speak. He was reminding them of this great story of Shebna and Elikim. And he was the, reminding them that I've opened a door for you. Opened a door for service. Opened a door to reach the lost. And that's a sign of a healthy church. That there are all kinds of opportunities to serve the Lord and reach the lost. And here's the thing. This past week, I began to think about all the opportunities that the open doors that God has given us as a church. I thought about Johan and Krista Kombrink in South Africa. We prayed for him earlier. Or Steve and Diane Warren in Kenya. Julie Caldwell in East Asia, Rocco and Caroline Panapinto, who were here just a couple of weeks ago in Germany, Phil and Peggy Arn and Dumo in Indonesia. We have uh, Wade and Deanna Ebersol and Kerry Pacheco in Papua New Guinea, Todd and Sarah Honeycutt in Slovenia. We, we, we've, got, we've got people in North India, Mexico. These are all doors that God has opened. We didn't open them. God opened those doors for us. And then we as a church family, through our giving and through our prayers and sending teams there, just walked through those opportunities. And all of them are discipling people. All of them are reaching people. I thought about our weekend gatherings here. These are all open doors to reaching the loss and places to, to, to serve. Saturday nights at 6, Sunday mornings at 9, Sunday mornings at 11. We have the venue. We're going to start the venue at 6 o'clock. Different kinds of music, different kinds of feelings, vibes, or whatever word you want to use. We have a Spanish-speaking ministry meeting right now out at the, the high school. There's all kinds of opportunities here to reach the, the lost, places to, to serve. I thought about some of the events that we, we do here at Big Valley Grace. These are all open doors to reaching the lost and places to serve. Uh, married life, uh, the maze, single life, the maze coming on September 19th and 20th. Those are open doors. God has opened a door for you, has opened a door for us. Some people would never come to church on a Sunday or a Saturday night, but they'd come to an event like this. Married couples, single people. There are some churches who would love to have the maze come to their church, but you know what? God didn't open up that door. They don't have the resources. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the, the shekels. They, they don't have what, what it would take to, to do an event like that. 
but he's, he's given us that. He's opened that door for us. I thought about our youth camps and retreats. I thought about our men's and women's conferences. Christmas weekend here, Christmas Eve, Easter weekend. These are incredible opportunities, doors that are open that I know most of you take advantage of. That's why we add extra gatherings at Easter or Christmas, because it's an incredible open door for ministry and to reach the, uh, the lost. I thought about some of our uh, ongoing ministries. These are open doors to reaching the lost and places to serve. It could be children's ministries, youth ministries, our parenting ministries, men's ministries, uh, women's ministries. Unbelievable, the opportunities, the open doors that God has uh, put before us. Uh, I thought a lot about our MOPS ministry this past week. And if you don't know what MOPS is, it's mothers of, of preschoolers. And there isn't a MOPS ministry like anywhere around like we've got here at Big Valley Grace. We had to move it from the fireside room into the venue. And there's over 150 children. So all these MOPS show up. And they bring all their kids. 100 and 50 children. I want to say there's like a hundred uh, 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 these moms of, of preschoolers. And the gal who leads it is a, a gal by the name of Heather, and she called me. And here's what I love about the people of this church. She said, hey, we'd like for you to come and speak to, to our mops group in December. And she said, December's kind of special. I, I, I guess I open it up to lots of people, and, and uh, we want you to maybe come with a, 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 an evangelistic message. You see, we recognize, she recognizes that this is a, an open door for people to serve, and it's an open door to reach the, the lost. And I look right back there, and I think I see it right back there. And it's what I love about all the people that serve here. They're, they're not only serving, but they see the opportunities that we have to tell people about Jesus. I thought about our Christian service brigade, celebrate recovery, story time at the library, our financial classes, our marriage classes, and the list goes on and on and on. These are all opportunities, they're open doors to serving the Lord, they're open doors to reaching the, the lost. Now, because this is so important, I wanna, I wanna hammer this home. I'm gonna put one more nail, if you will, in the coffin. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this to a group of people who were not his followers. And for some of you, this is going to be a little bit brutal. These next couple of passages are really brutal, especially if you don't know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, we're thankful you're here. We really are. And just let me unpack this a little bit. Don't, don't just, just relax, take a deep breath, because Jesus has some pretty brutal stuff to say. Jesus told them, these unbelievers. If God were your father, you, you'd love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but, but the father's the one who sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? Well, here's why. It's because you, you can't even hear me. It, it's impossible for you to even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love doing the evil things he does. Now, now, just give me a second. I want to unpack this. This may be the most important moment for you in our gathering. That's, that's just some, some heavy stuff. You see, before I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I had a different spiritual father. 
And I was committed to carrying out his desires. Now, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't wake up in the morning and go, okay, whew, get my teeth brushed, let me comb my hair, and, you know, evil one, what do you want me to do today? <laughs> well, what's your will for me today? What's your desires for me today? What, what's your purpose for me today? I didn't, I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the devil. I didn't believe in the demons. I never had that. I never consciously would have thought something like that. But according to Jesus, not according to me, according to Jesus, I had a spiritual father, the evil one. And somehow I was about his business. I didn't think I was. I, I, I would have I fought you tooth and nail on that. But the reality is, I was involved, according to Jesus, in the evil one's business. Now, Jesus also makes this comment in Matthew chapter 12. He says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So kind of the same thought there. You're, you're either for Jesus or you're against him. There's no wiggle room. There's no neutrality. Now, once again, man, before I gave my life to the Lord, I would have thought I was neutral to, to Jesus. And I know some of you are sitting here, you're going, you know what, I, I'm not hostile to Jesus. I, I like the music, and I like the fact you help out with Love Modesto. Thanks for feeding the poor and all that you do. I, I'm not hostile to the things of God. I'm just neutral. No, you're not. Not according to Jesus. You think you are. I thought I was, but Jesus makes it crystal clear. You're either for him or you're against him. It's one or the other. The, the word of God is, is crystal clear. But see, at the moment I gave my life to Jesus, everything changed. You see, I used to be against Jesus. Didn't think I was, but I was. But at the moment I gave my life to Jesus Christ, something supernatural happened. No longer did I have the evil one as my spiritual father. I, I now became a child of God. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 1. He said, he, that's Jesus, came into the very world that he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believe him, all who accept him, he gave those people the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resorting from human passion or uh, plan, but a birth that comes from God. You see, once... I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Once you gave your life to Jesus Christ, something amazing happened. You no longer had the evil one for your spiritual father. You now became a child of God. You now had him as your spiritual father. And when you have God as your spiritual father, he has a different agenda or purpose or will for your life than the evil one has. In fact, let me give you just two of them real quick. Number one, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 16. He said, he, that's Jesus, said to them, that was his followers, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach the good news to all creation. 
Now that I became a child of God, no longer am I to carry out the desires or the will or the purposes of the evil one. Now God says, hey, Rick, hey, 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 follower of mine, I want you to go out and preach the good news. And that doesn't mean you have to have a pulpit. That word preach just means proclaim. All God wants you to do is just go tell people about what Jesus did in your life. Tell Jesus, you know, tell people about how the Lord has made a difference in your life. That's what you're called to, to do. If you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you're, you're called to be a, 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 an ambassador for him. You're called to tell people about what God's done in your life. And number two, Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. If you have the gift of speaking, then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Well, then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. And those aren't all the gifts. But the point is, is this, is that once you became a follower of Jesus, God says, hey, now I want you to tell others about me, and I want you to use your one life to serve others, to be a blessing to others. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, you're called to use your gifts to serve others, to be a blessing to others. It's one of the, the uh, things that, the heavenly, that our Heavenly Father wants us to do. Now, I looked at this church, the church at Philadelphia, and I said, you know what? Unbelievable the, the door that God had opened for them to reach people. God has opened a great door here. Most of you have walked through that door, but I know that there are some of you here, and you know what? You're still kind of locked into your chair. You're here. And I hope today is the day that you go, you know what? I want to I walk through these open doors that God has given to me. God's opened up all these incredible doors, and I'm, I'm still standing outside. Well, walk, walk through them today. Now, let me give you this, the second one. Uh, second sign, okay, a healthy church relies on God's strength for everything. In verse 8, there's this unique little phrase. Jesus says, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And then he says this, I know that you have little strength. And a lot of people think that that was a derogatory term. I don't think that. I don't think that was a derogatory term at all. You, you see, the church at Philadelphia was, was small in number. They didn't have very many members. And the members that they did have were, were poor. They came from a, um, a lower class of society. They, they hardly had any resources that they could tap into. So, so in human terms, they had little strength. In human terms. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, you got a little strength. There's just a few of you. You don't have much money, you don't have many resources, but what you do have is me. And this was a church that obviously, though they had little strength, incredible you know, stuff was, was happening. You know, People were serving the Lord, people were getting saved, people's lives were being transformed, the name of Jesus was being church. This was a, 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 um, you know, a, a church that was making a huge impact for Jesus in the city. And it was all because they relied upon God's power. They had a little strength. They didn't have much. But what they did have was an incredibly big God. Someone once said, uh, a little bit of God is far more powerful than a lot of man. 
And that's true. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And that's the truth. I think the theme verse for this church could have been what Paul said in Philippians chapter 12. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That could have been the, the banner on this church at Philadelphia. We're little we got a little strength, man. There's not many of us. We don't have much resources. We don't have much money. We don't got much. But we can do everything through Christ who strengthens us. And a sign of a healthy church is a, a church that really does rely upon the strength of the Lord. One of the, the great illustrations, I, I think, in Scripture is found in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets up with this woman at a well. <laughs> she was a broken woman. She was a messed up gal. Married and divorced a number of times, was living in immorality, uh, living with a guy. She was messed up. She would be what we might call, she, she had a little power. And she meets up with Jesus, and Jesus has this incredible conversation with her. And when they were done at this well, this messed up gal who didn't have much power, didn't know much, she goes back to her hometown. Maybe she met up with her neighbors and began to tell her neighbors. Maybe she met up with her family members and began to tell her family members. Maybe she met up with some of the people she works with. I, I don't know how it all worked out, but this gal who was broken, messed up, who had little power, relied upon the Lord. She had to have, because the Bible says that this, her hometown kind of broke out in revival. All of a sudden, all these people in her hometown begin to give their life to Christ. Not because Billy Graham showed up, not because the Apostle Paul showed up or the Apostle Peter showed up. It's because this broken woman who didn't have much, but she had an encounter with Jesus. And when you got Jesus, you, you got all the power you need. And one of the signs of a healthy church is a church that really relies upon the power of God to move and breathe within it. One of the songs that was super popular when, when I was uh, the youth pastor here was a song called Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. Oh, Lord, kumbaya. And some of you are probably thinking, well, what does that mean? Come by here, my Lord. Come by here. Come by here, my Lord. Come by here. Come by here, my Lord. Come by here. Oh, Lord. Come by here. This was a church that understood the importance of kumbaya. They knew that if God didn't come by, they were dead in the water. A healthy church understands the principle of kumbaya. You see, you as an individual Christian need to understand the principle of kumbaya. Unless the Lord comes by your, your personal life, 
unless the Lord kumbayas your marriage, you're in trouble. Unless the Lord kumbayas your family, probably got trouble. Unless the Lord kumbayas your business, you're in trouble. That song, Kumbaya, I think was, could have been their theme song. Psalms 127 says this, unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord kumbayas, the work of the builders is just wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, unless the Lord kumbayas, unless the Lord comes by, <laughs> guarding it with centuries will just do no good. Beloved, unless the Lord kumbayas your life, your family, your business, and you're just in trouble. All the security devices in the world don't matter unless the Lord kumbayas your family. And let me tell you something. One of the signs of a healthy church is that God has opened up doors of service, doors to reach the lost, and it's a church that understands the importance of kumbaya. They rely upon God's power to get things done.